Good morning, Crossbridge family, and welcome to Crossbridge Online. It is so good to be with you this morning. And if you're a guest with us, I especially want to welcome you and say thank you so much for joining us wherever that is today. And I want to let you know that my hope and my prayer for you is the same as it is for every single person who's part of this community and family. And that's simply this, no matter where you find yourself in your faith today, I hope and I pray that you would be able to take one step towards Jesus because that is what we are all about here at Crossbridge. And I am so excited as we continue in our series that we're going through as we look at Ruth right now and this idea of the best is yet to come. And, and this week, many of you soaped through Ruth, which is soaping is the way that we read the Bible together. And I just want to say thank you so much for all of the comments and all of the feedback about how you know amazing this book is that you're like, I didn't even know. And all I want to do is say, I agree. It's so good. It's so good. As I was reading it this week and preparing for our time together in the Word, I was kind of brought back to a moment when I was a kid that I kind of had a rhythm that I built with my parents. Maybe you've experienced this yourself or you have kids in your home that kind of do this. This was me, when, whenever my parents asked me a question and they asked me to do something around the house, whether it was, you know, empty the dishwasher, take out the dog, go weeding outside, you know, mow the lawn, anything like that. I, I, I started to ask the questions like, hey, yeah, but what, what's in it for me? What am I going to get out of it if I say yes to doing this? It actually became even more pronounced if they asked me to help someone else who wasn't in our family. When they were like, can you go you know, babysit this person's kids so they can go out? Or can you go walk their dog? Can you go weed their lawn? And my question was always, well, what am I going to get out of this? What, what's in it for me? Now, to be honest, I had no concept of mortgages, water and electricity, the money it costs to put food on a table or anything else that my parents had graciously covered and blessed me with at that time. All I knew is that I didn't wanna put extra work in. I didn't wanna put any more time into getting into what I felt like doing. I'd rather go play Super Mario Brothers 3. That's what I wanted. But if it was gonna benefit me and they said, well, you're gonna get this much or be able to go do that, I was ready to be blessed with the benefit. I'd love to tell you that things have changed since I was a kid, but the reality is I still find this question sneaking into my life still as an adult, as a parent, and as a person in our culture. Unfortunately, there's times that I still shift what I'm going through and, and I have to sift what I'm going through with the questions, what am I gonna get out of this? What's this gonna cost me? Is this really worth it? And maybe right now you, you recognize this in your life and you know you feel that because I believe I'm not alone in this. I think this is something that we all kind of wrestle with is wondering what do I get out of it? And I think Unfortunately, this is the way that most of us live our everyday life, whether we want to admit it or not, whether we're followers of Jesus or not. A majority of our everyday choices are simply a series of checks and balances to make sure that in the end, we're on top, that we're at the center, that we get what we want. This morning, I I want to tell you that I don't believe this is the way of Jesus, that I believe he calls us to a much 
different way of life and how we look at our everyday decisions. Instead of asking the question, what do I get out of this? I believe that Jesus, and we're going to see this in a second as we journey through the book of Ruth again, that both Jesus and Ruth are going to point us to really say that, that we need to work hard to be the blessing, not to be blessed. And let me say that again for you, just so you can get it. We need to work hard to be the blessing, not to be blessed. I'd love to explore Ruth chapter 2 with you. So if you have your Bibles with you, if you could turn to Ruth chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you, please let us know. Um, We would love to send you one and make sure that you have that. Ruth is a very tiny book, four chapters, you know, found right after Judges, this crazy book um, about how this nation has no real identity yet. And it's going to be right before they establish themselves as a nation in First and Second Samuel. So you'll find it right in there. Use your table of contents to find it. But, you know, we talked about how these four chapters, while they seem insignificant, are actually carry so much weight. And this beautiful story that's been written by this author, one of the most well done and put together novellas in all of ancient history has so much to teach us. As this story was being told, and and I use that word told intentionally because we have to understand that our culture, we like to read stories or we watch stories on a screen, but we're not always the best when it comes to telling stories. We're not really, we're not wired that way. We're visual, but in this culture, in the Jewish nation, they told their stories and there was an art to storytelling. So this story would have been told out loud to each other constantly. And as they listened to it, there would have been certain aspects to their Jewish culture in multiple thousands BC or hundreds BC when this is written that we're not gonna understand because we're 21st century, you know, people. That the laws and the guidelines that would have been just understood to them, they, they don't connect to us because we don't use those words and we don't have those traditions. But I, I need you to remember that as we look, I, I need to tell you about two things that we would completely miss reading this because we're not BC Jewish people. And so in order to do that, we're gonna look at the book of Leviticus first really quick because it's really important. And if you've ever tried to read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, Leviticus is usually the place you stop and quit and say, I'm out. It's this book where all of these rules seem insignificant, they're just, off the wall when we read them now, and we ask the question, why in the world would God put these, why would he give them these rules? And we have to remember that God's heart is for his chosen people. And all of these rules had a very clear purpose, and it was to preserve and to protect his chosen people. We see them as insignificant, and they don't make sense. But simple things, you know, when you think about it like, um, Uh, kosher rules and what you could and couldn't eat. Why did that matter? Well, before they could refrigerate things and do anything, they had issues with foodborne illnesses. And so God had designed a way with how long you could wait for food before you had to throw it out where nations wouldn't do that. What kind of animals were likely to carry diseases? They weren't allowed to eat those things by law. And we could look and say, it's so exclusive, but God's like, you're gonna be healthier, stronger, and better than all the nations around you simply by what you eat. 
You'll learn about that on Monday as you get into Daniel, okay, or tomorrow as you get into Daniel. So things like that. We look at certain rules in Leviticus and it's like, why does God care so much about washing your hands? Like, it, it gets common sense. Yeah, no, it wasn't. They would go and slaughter or do sacrifices or do whatever in all these nations and, and then go eat. It didn't matter, but God's saying, I, your cleanliness is going to keep you healthier. I've got, I've got a plan for you. So all of these rules had preservation and his love kind of written into them. And one of the most important ones that makes a difference for us today is if you go into Leviticus chapter 19, we find that God has brought about a way for this nation to care for the poor and the foreigners who live around where they live, okay? So if you jump into Leviticus 19, it says this, starting in verse nine, when you harvest the crops of your land, do not harvest the grain along the edges of your field and do not pick up what the harvesters drop. Leave them for the poor and the foreigners living among you. I am the Lord your God. Do not steal, do not deceive or cheat one another. God has set up a system where they're supposed to leave the edges of their field and every rabbi that I've been reading to try to figure this out has kind of said the same thing. And that the common rule of thumb was that if you owned a field, you would leave about 1 60th of it along the edges so that the poor and the foreigners could come through and they would simply get to pick off of that. And it's pretty cool when you think about this because you send your workers out to work and they just are gonna take a majority of the middle. They're gonna do their job, they're gonna walk off. If you drop stuff, don't worry about it. Just keep going, someone else will get it behind you. You could stay efficient with your work. Leftovers for the poor, for the foreign. And what's great about this is God has designed a way that even the poor and the foreigner in these lands don't lose their dignity. They have to work for their food still. They have to work. It's not just handed to them. They've got to go get it. And they put some effort in. It's not a handout from God. Their dignity is preserved by what they are getting. If you note though, verse 11 says, don't steal, and you've got that idea if you didn't leave the edges of your field in the corners with crops, it was seen as robbing from the poor. It was seen as robbing from the foreigners. And it's like, why would God follow up with don't steal? Because he's a heart for the poor and the foreigner. He's always bringing them in and inviting them in and saying, you can be cared for by what's even left over. And if you as an Israelite take that from them, that's stealing. Don't do that. Give that portion away. And so many of them would actually leave more than 1 60th because the common thought was the more I give to those around, the more the harvest in the center will be greater. And so they would continue to try to balance how much could I give away. So that's our first thing that we need to figure out, how they cared for the poor and the foreigner. The second thing has to do with family lines and how they preserved them. In Leviticus chapter 25, and I'm not gonna read the passage to, or, you know, together because it could get really convoluted. It's long and trying to figure it out is a little difficult, but there's an issue that they would have at this time where it was so important to carry on family names and to make sure that they could pass down these fields that they cared for to the next generations. And so if something happened and you had to sell your land, I could take my land and sell it to you but then someone in my family, if they had enough money to purchase that land back, they could purchase that land and say, wait a second, this isn't really yours. This is Jimmy's. 
and, and I need to take this so it stays in the Donnarumma line. And it, the goal was to make sure that it stayed in a family. If you could not purchase it back, there was something called the year of Jubilee when God made everything reset. If you didn't have land, it came back to you. If you sold it way back in the day, it didn't matter. All debts were canceled. All contracts were canceled. It was the year of Jubilee where everything canceled. It's all reset. You got your land back. But it also worked when it came to family lines. They wanted to see the line of the father continue. So sometimes we read these awkward moments in scripture and we hear about them in history and it still happens today where a husband and wife are, you know, they're married, the husband dies, and then it's like her brother-in-law who marries her, gets her pregnant, and, and this is a good thing. In this culture, that brother-in-law would be doing a service to the family to step in, and they would call these people family redeemers or kinsmen redeemers, the closeness of the family, to protect that brother's line. They would be associated with that line so that when the year of Jubilee hit, guess what they would get back? That land that belonged to the family. And it was a way of bringing about this justice of caring for family lines and for land. And it's a huge deal if you don't have a son because you can't pass it on and whoever gets that land gets to keep it as theirs. You need to keep these in mind because things don't work that way where we live, but they did here. So it's with that in mind, you ready? Let's open up to Ruth chapter two, and uh, you, you're gonna see why this is important. Ruth chapter two, it starts with this. Now, there was a wealthy and influential man in Bethlehem named Boaz, who was a relative of Naomi's husband, Elimelech. We have a new character on the scene. His name is Boaz. And when the author mentions that he's from the line of Elimelech, you and I, it's like, this seems like a throwaway comment. But to the original hearers and audience of this, they would have all of a sudden had like Lloyd Christmas's, you know, phrase in head, like, or in their head going, so you're saying there's a chance here. Like they would have known the kinsman rule and went, there's an opportunity. Like there's, there's someone who could help in this, it's a tease to this audience because he doesn't continue with the story of Boaz. In verse two, it goes back and it says, one day Ruth the Moabite, and pick it up here, the author is highlighting the foreignness of Ruth. She's making sure everybody remembers she's not one of us, okay? Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go out into the harvest fields to pick up the stalks of grain left behind by anyone who is kind enough to let me do it. Naomi replied, all right, my daughter, go ahead. So Ruth went out to gather grain behind the harvesters. And as it happened, she found herself working in a field that belonged to Boaz, the relative of her father-in-law, Elimelech. Ruth, who we talked about last week, has demonstrated chesed, this great kindness, and has lived out determination to stay with Naomi. In chapter one, continues this same determination in chapter two. She's part of this new family of people, right? Your people, my people, your God, my God. What are we supposed to do? We're poor widows. And, and I bet you there's this moment that Naomi has to explain to her like, oh, this is what's cool. This is how God takes care of the poor in our nation. You can go around the fields and go pick up stuff. What? That's what we do. That's how we take care of this. You go through and, and the word that you'll see sometimes is they glean, they take the leftovers. And so what does she do? Ruth does not wait. She basically is like, all right, 
let's get to work. She doesn't elevate herself to think, well, someone should take care of me since I'm new here. She does not think that picking up scraps left behind by people who are doing a job is below her. She literally looks and thinks, we gotta eat. There's an opportunity for me to make that happen. I'll follow behind anybody to see what I could get. We need to eat. And, and believe it or not, these gleaners, these poor, the foreigners would put in more work than the farmers themselves and the harvesters because they would be able to take a major place where they didn't have to find or search. It was all right in front of them. These leftovers were tougher to find. You, you were really looking for, so you would put in more work and have less there. But Ruth has lived a life of chesed, determination. She is going to be a blessing to Naomi. Nothing has changed. She's working to be the blessing, not to be blessed. If you look at the whole chapter, Ruth from very start to finish in chapter two works hard. She is a nonstop worker to where her work ethic is unbelievably commendable. She actually catches the eyes of her workers because of how hard that she works. And we're gonna find out later that she starts her working at first light. She wasn't even gonna wait. As soon as the sun came up, she was ready to go. And she's going to work until sundown and a little bit past. On any other day, she would not have collected what she's about to collect this day. And I think I need to say this. Um, just because it's pointed out here, we have a young woman working in comparison to other people in the fields. Uh, please never make the mistake that equal work is going to mean equal pay. We have that issue right now in front of us and these foreigners and these poor people could put in so much more work than the owners and the harvesters and still not get as much barley in the field. And if you think that unequal pay based on gender, race, and class is a new issue that we're trying to figure out and tackle and equity and all that, you're, you're, you're thousands of years behind. This was an issue and God's trying to figure out a way to make sure that there is some level of, we need to get you working. How do we honor you and keep your dignity? But Ruth's working hard. She's not looking for a handout uh, and she just wants to bless Naomi. And this is when Boaz comes back on the scene in this chapter. Boaz comes on the scene and he does what many other farmers would not do and owners. And the first thing he does is he blesses all his workers and they respond back with blessings for him. There's this cool little moment where it's like, you know, just, hey, everybody, hey, it's good to see you. And they're so excited for each other because there's relationship. This shows us that Boaz actually does care about the people that he employs. He's not coming to crack the whip like everybody else. He comes with blessings for his workers. He's a different type of worker, owner. And something about Ruth catches his eye. I don't know if it was that she physically looked different. I don't think so because of the closeness of their tribes. I don't know if it's because she wore different clothes. Then I don't know if it was her work ethic that stood out. I don't know if it was that she sat all alone maybe when everybody else had a community. All I know is that verses six and seven tell us after Boaz asks him, who's that? The foreman says, she's the young woman from Moab who came back with Naomi. She asked me this morning, and that word this morning there is, she asked me at first light, like she was first one here. 
She asked me this morning if she could gather grain behind the harvesters. She's been hard at work ever since, except for a few minutes rest in the shelter. So Boaz, he goes over to meet her. And in verses eight and nine, he's like, listen, I need you to do me a favor. Stay here. Stay in my field. Stay in this field and don't use any other fields to gather and to glean. Use this as your only field because you'll be safe in this field. And it's not even that, um, actually, she would have been in great danger in other fields. You know, the men could have taken great advantage of her because there would have been these issues. But here he's like, I'm going to tell these other guys to actually help you. If you need a drink, they'll go to the well for you. But you stay here with these other women. There's safety here. And, and as an unprotected foreign widow, anything could have happened to her in another field. But through God's providence and chesed, his kindness, she landed in Boaz's field where she now had a steady spot every day to come back and work hard. Ruth at this moment is unbelievably thankful and she can't figure out, you know, Boaz, why are you being so nice to me? Like, I am a foreign woman. I offer you nothing. I can give you nothing. I have, I'm empty in this moment. Why would you show this great kindness and favor to me? And it's Boaz's reply in verse 11 and 12 that I just love. He says, yes, I know, Boaz replied, but I also know about everything you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. I have heard how you left your father and mother, your own land to live here among complete strangers. May the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you've done. I don't know if you know this, but uh, people talk. People talk, and Bethlehem at this point is 150 to a, maybe just a, a little bit bigger, a couple hundred people. You know everybody who's around. This is like a small high school at this point, and if you've ever been the center of a rumor at high school, you know how quick that flies around. Everybody wants to share about that. And what we have now is Bethlehem, the high school, if you will, sees Naomi come home who was broken and empty. She went away, came back with nothing except a foreign attachment. And she announces to everybody, I got nothing. I'm empty. This is all I got. And so you know that that spreads. But what also spreads is what Ruth has said to her. Your people, my people, your God, my God, where you die, I die. You can't get rid of me. I will be your blessing. I will be for you. Boaz has heard and now he sees. He sees and he says, I've seen it and I've heard it. You are the blessing to her. I know your story. Your story isn't being a Moabite. Your story is being a foreigner who collected and, and consciously, consciously said, I'm staying here with you to be the blessing. And what's really, really cool about this, if you will, is in verse 8, when Boaz says, stay here, do you know what word this is? I, I love this stuff. The word stay here is actually could be translated in the Hebrew word cling. The same exact word that we read about Ruth hanging on to Naomi and clinging to her in the last chapter saying, I'm not going anywhere. Boaz is saying, you've been a blessing. You cling here. This land is where you will work. This land is where you collect your blessing. 
This is where you go. And I, I, I love this because he basically is saying the way that you supported my family, even though you don't know it yet, I'm going to support you. Cling to this spot. But she doesn't take this for granted and think, oh, I got this made. You know what she does? She goes back to work, not expecting anything special. Jump down with me to verse 15. It says this. When Ruth went back to work again, Boaz ordered his young men, let her gather grain right among the sheaves without stopping her, and pull out some of the heads of barley from the bundles, drop them on purpose for her, let her pick them up, don't give her a hard time. And 17 continues, so Ruth gathered barley there all day, and when she beat out the grain that evening, it filled an entire basket. Your, your translation might say she gathered an epha, you know, which again, we don't know what that means. Ruth, Ruth's basically headed home right now with about 30 to 50 pounds of grain. 30 to 50 pounds of barley. This is not normal. In this moment, this is about five days worth of work that she accomplished from sunup to sundown. I think her story got around to a lot more people than Boaz. I think that these men in the field, they must have been dropping an immense amount of barley for her to pick up to get this. I wonder if they heard of her chesed towards Naomi. I wonder if as they heard about that and they're picking their grain and walking all around, which each time they dropped barley, they thought, I hope someone cares for my mom like that if something happened to me. I, I hope that someone blesses my mom and she's not alone as a widow with nothing in a foreign land. Like, I can't believe she did this. And they decided to be the blessing just like they saw Boaz being the blessing. And when Ruth gets home and she drops this mound of a basket of grain on the table, I just want to know what Naomi's face looked like. Come on, that's like a what the what moment that she's, are you, are you, where did you get this? Almost like, did you steal this? Did you like, you know, knock out one of the real farmers to get this? Like this is, a, this is a week's worth of grain. You were just supposed to get the edges. And what Naomi is about to say in verse 20 is the center of this entire book. The entire story of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz, the pinnacle of the story, the exact center of it is Ruth 2.20. And this is the moment that everything shifts, I believe, for Naomi, where she goes from bitter to being a blessing. There's a huge shift here. Everything before it builds up to this. Everything after comes off of this. So really catch this with me. Ruth chapter 2, verse 20. This is how Naomi responds. You ready? May the Lord bless him, Naomi told her daughter-in-law. Notice it's not Ruth the Moabite. She's in the family. She's a family member. May the Lord bless him. Naomi told her daughter-in-law, he is showing his kindness to us as well as to your dead husband. That man is one of our closest relatives, one of our family redeemers. The pinnacle of this story is not about an effa of barley on the table. It's not about how much they were blessed because of a day's worth of work. The pinnacle of the story is about the kindness and the blessing that results for this entire 
family's redemption. The entire family's redemption is wrapped up in this moment. And I'm begging you, Crossbridge, and if you're part of our family, please hear me. If you're just listening in, I'm begging you to listen to this. Never underestimate the power and the impact that being a blessing can have on the people around you. You have no idea who's watching you. You have no idea who's always listening for your story, who's retelling your story about you being the blessing. Last week, Ruth lives out chesed and kindness. And in chapter two, verse 20, we see Boaz being commended for what? His chesed. He was a great man already and now is demonstrating kindness because he's seen kindness. And I am 100% convinced that kindness inspires kindness and blessing inspires blessing. But too often we worry if we're gonna be on the receiving end of that kindness, the receiving end of that blessing, and we wait for these kindness, we wait for these blessing moments in our life, but we miss the joy of being the person who brings the kindness and brings the blessing, and we wait for it. Work hard to be the blessing, not to be blessed. And Ruth and Naomi, they heap blessings on Boaz in this moment, and what Naomi probably has to describe to her is what I did for you in the beginning, that like, he's one of our closest relatives, our family redeemer. That's probably when a, what? Comes through Ruth's face, like, what do you mean family redeemer? And in this moment, she gets to explain, like, listen, he is close to us, not the only family redeemer, because it's whoever's next in line, but he's in this line of people. And the fact that God brought you there I wonder if there was a glimmer of hope now for Naomi that he has seen me as I've returned. The last decade of loss is not wasted. The Lord's blessing is returning as we give that blessing away. The reason 220 becomes the turning point is Naomi goes from being a bitter person to being a blessing person. Something as little as the field that Ruth chose reminded her that God has a plan. It was an insignificant choice, but God is in the everyday just as much as he's in the large and the huge. Everything matters. And, and, and I'm telling you here, it's not like everything magically works out for Ruth, because you know what she does the next day? In chapter two, verse 23, it says, so Ruth worked alongside the women in Boaz's field, gathered grain with them until the end of the barley harvest. And then she continued working with them through the wheat harvest into the early summer. And then all the while she lived with her mother-in-law. For the next two months, outside of Sabbath, from sunup to sundown, Ruth's going to work. She, she works hard to be the blessing, all the while being blessed by Boaz, then blessed by his workers, which then brought probably a whole different set of stories, which blesses Bethlehem as a whole, because God's doing something in our city. How cool is this? What started it? That foreign lady. Who? Naomi's daughter-in-law. Oh, Naomi's family. It's so easy to go from foreigner to family when we choose to be the blessing. Because true kindness will inspire kindness and blessing inspires blessing, which inspires blessing. And so I'm begging you, Crossbridge, will we be the church that works hard to be the blessing, not to be blessed? Let's be the blessing. And, and I'll, I'll be honest, as I was preparing this 
weeks ago and, and getting it all ready. I thought I was done with this message and I was like, oh, this would be a fun one to write until this Wednesday when I was at small group. And I'm telling you, if you don't have a community of people that you could journey through scripture with, you are missing out on everything. I don't know how you survive without it. At Crossbridge, there's a ton of groups that you could find in person, online, wherever you are. You need this. And if you choose not to do it, that's on you, but you need this. And I sat as the educated Bible pastor of Crossbridge with a group of seven men right here in Classy Cow, right at that spot under the light. And as a group of men talked about this beautiful love story, we ended in a place we never thought we did. It was so good. And then one of the guys, when we were wrapping up with what we've learned and how our time was with God in this passage, he dropped a bomb on me that uh, it it shook my soul. It left me speechless in that moment thinking, what do I do with this? And he simply just said, In his time of reading, the Holy Spirit just brought a question to mind that he had to think about. And and it wasn't a question about his character or anything like that, but it was an invitation type of question. And then he looked up and he simply said to us, what if everyone who could did? What, What if everyone who could did. And it became so personal to me in that moment because it was no longer we were that, that I should be looking for the blessings, for the payoffs. But instead, it's just saying, God, where, where can I step into the kindness, the blessing, the opportunities that you've put in my life's path? What if everyone who could did? Ruth could work, so she did. Naomi could teach her about the tradition so she could do it, so she did. Boaz could give generously, so he did. The workers could share part of their work, so they did. God's not inviting us to live out someone else's story. God's inviting us to live out the story that he's prepared in advance for us to do. Good works for us to step into, to be the blessing, and simply, because we can, do it to show up and to do it, to work hard with what's in front of us. And if we've placed our trust in Jesus Christ and we call ourselves his disciples, shouldn't we be the biggest blessing to South Jersey or wherever you live rather than everyone else around us? Shouldn't we be the people that say, man, when they show up, it's gonna be the best. I think they go to that church and they're part of that people that likes to give everything away, that likes to show up for people. What would it look like if we could? We did it. This is how Jesus lived his life. He showed up and what he could do, he did do. And he invited everyone to do it along with him. He was never asking, how do I get out of this? He worked hard to be the blessing. And following Jesus' family is not about what we get out of it. This is not about receiving heaven and salvation. This is about embracing a Holy Spirit who fills us because of Christ's sacrifice for us to show up like he did, to sacrifice our comfort, our payoff, us being at the center to put him there to bless others like he did. This is not about you or me. This is about others so that we show up to look like Jesus, to be the blessing. Are you a blessing? One of the things that I love most about today 
is the fact that we get to practice being a blessing together and put into practice this very thing. And I need to just, it's a really cool moment that we're gonna share. And in a second, I'm gonna invite Pastor Will to um, just come here to join me along with an elder to, to pray over him because uh, he's gonna be starting his sabbatical tomorrow. And one of the cool things at Crossbridge that you have blessed us with is the ability for your staff and your pastors to take sabbaticals. And you know we, we value the Sabbath, this 24-hour period, to keep it holy, to rest and rejuvenate. And, and I'll tell you, I got a couple of years ago a sabbatical, and it changed my life in ministry. And then two years ago, Becky got a sabbatical. It was fantastic. And last year was supposed to be Will's sabbatical, but unfortunately, nothing was open, and he couldn't go anywhere. He couldn't leave his house because we had a pandemic. There was be no rest in that. But this is his last week with us for six weeks. I know that many churches, their pastors take sabbaticals, sabbaticals because they burned out or they've acted out or something's gone wrong. But that's not the way things work at Crossbridge. You have blessed us with saying we see the weight you carry. We see the, the work ethic of Ruth that you bring to this community. And we know how hard it is. And we want to give you that space to allow you to rest, to allow you to rejuvenate. And it's not like a vacation time. It's an intentional time to be with Jesus, to let our souls catch up to our bodies because they're tired. And I'm so grateful that Pastor Will agreed to have just punted a year and work even unbelievably hard last year. He deserves this. And it's such a blessing to him. And so I'm so excited that we get to pray over him together to bless him so that when he comes back, it's not about what he brings to the table with worship or youth ministry or anything like that, because it's not about what he does that he brings back. It's about who he is, and he will be more blessed because of this space. So I'm going to go grab my mask and ask that you join me back here in just a second so we can pray over him. Thanks for coming back with us real quick as we pray Pastor Will out. Um, many of you know that at Crossbridge, we kind of have a board and elders who oversee the direction and the vision to make sure that we're holding to that of our church. And these are the men that I get the privilege of meeting each week with to study scripture, pray together, uh, Jeremy, Chris, and Bill. And thank you guys so much for making the time to come and just pray over Pastor Will the way that we see it in Acts as they you know, they prayed people out into the, the, you know, the trips that they had, missionaries in here, the sabbatical that you're about to take. You got six weeks coming up. How you feeling? I'm feeling good. I mean, this is like, it doesn't happen every day no. that you get to take a six-week sabbatical. So I'm very thankful for the opportunity and the, the option to get to do this. Yeah, so people aren't going to be able to get in contact with you for six weeks. You're changing your number, not answering anything. Yeah. This is no great. No Facebook, no Instagram. You're, uh, you're going to die. It's going to be great. Um, <laughs> You start to shake a little bit week one. That's great. Um, for our church as a way of supporting you, not just in giving you that time away, what is um, one thing that we can be praying for for you as God brings you to our minds together? Yeah, I think the biggest thing you can pray for is that I just have this time to truly connect with God. I mean, I, I'm a busy person. I like to fill my schedule. Um, so thinking about six weeks of slowing down is a challenge. Um, but I don't want to waste that time. So I really just want to connect with God during that time. All right. Crossbridge, this is our responsibility to pray for our pastor, to let his soul catch his body, and to connect with God and pray like crazy for Sharon, who's going to deal with a bouncing off the walls will 
on week one and two. Yeah. <laughs> so, all right, well, let's pray for you. And uh, I want to start just by praying a blessing from Numbers chapter six. It simply says, may the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord smile on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord show you his favor and give you peace. And God, I pray for Pastor Will now. I thank you for such a faithful servant of you, that he gives all he has to honor you and pours so much into the life of your bride here at Crossbridge. And I thank you so much for his dedication, his integrity, and his calling. And I ask God, as he is blessed with time to slow down, that you would allow him to work through this week, not or this next six weeks, not to accomplish anything other than finding himself like Mary at your feet. That he would find times of retreat that are sweet, times of vacation that are just um, filling. And as he returns to Crossbridge after six weeks, there would be a sense of, yes, we missed you, but oh my goodness, it's so good to see you because you are a blessing. God, I pray that you would bless him, keep him safe, and allow him lots of naps. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Crossbridge, thank you so much for the gift of sabbaticals. And, uh, you know, here we go. We've got the next six weeks. We could do this together. We love you. We're praying for you. And do me a favor this week. Go be the blessing. We'll see you next week.